Hey, good morning, Tulip Street. So glad to be with you all today on this rainy morning. Uh, many of you, if you're like us, uh, were woken up to the sounds of thunder and lightning outside your window. <laughs> there was one, I swear, it was like right outside. I checked the window to make sure none of our trees were struck. Thankfully, we're okay. Uh, and uh, I spoke out at Spring Mill uh, the Pioneer Village out there at the meeting house this morning, and there were a grand total of five of us, including me, and the two that lead the singing. Um, <laughs> all the campers were hightailing it out of there about seven o'clock this morning, uh, from what I hear. But we're glad to have you with us today. Hey, can I just pause for a second and go back to a, a psalm that we talked about a couple weeks ago, Psalm 8? Uh, if you recall at all, Psalm 8 was the psalm of David looking up at the stars and wonder at God's creation and his love for us. And I closed with a, with a, a poem from Walt Whitman called When I Heard the Learned Astronomer. Well, Mr. Jeff, our uh, in-house historian, came up to me and said, do you know when that was written or who it was about? I'm like, uh, I don't know. So I went back and did a little bit more searching. That poem was written in 1867, but a lot of people think the, quote, learned astronomer that Walt Whitman was referencing in that poem was none other than, I think it's Ormsby Mitchell, who, if you know anything about that name, that's who our town is named after. <laughs> he was a learned, famous astronomer who traveled the country in the 1840s, um, had a, 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 a research center set up in Cincinnati, did a lot of uh, lectures in like New York and Chicago and like places across the country. And, it's, uh, and apparently Walt Whitman was a big fan of Mitchell's. And that in all likelihood was the learned astronomer that he was referencing. It's just kind of comes full circle. It's fascinating to me. I just wanted to share that little bit for you. It's, it's the guy our town is named after. All right. Hey, so today we're going to be in Psalm 139. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open there. If you're using the Bible app, uh, the notes should be loaded in. Uh, we're having an issue with our internet today, as many of you may have had at your own homes because of the storms and everything but we will do our best. Hey, so I titled this, Fully Known and Truly Loved. Now, most of you don't even pay attention to the sermon titles, but it helps me to keep them all organized and stuff. But here are some rejected sermon titles as I was going through the way. Um, I love you. I know Star Wars fans out there. He you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. Kind of creepy. Every breath you take, every move you make, I'll be watching you. Right? You may be familiar with that. Um, God calls you my precious. Any Lord of the Rings fans out there? Uh, finally, rejected titles. And hey, teenage boys, if you are single, feel free to use this one next time you're at church camp. Hey, girl, you remind me of Psalm 139 because you are fearfully and wonderfully made. There you go. There's a good pickup line for you. Rejected sermon titles. But in all seriousness, Psalm 139, if I polled a crowd of churchgoers and asked, what's your favorite psalm? Well, the first one's probably Psalm 23. That's the one most of us are familiar with, and we will get to that in this series. 
But Psalm 139 is probably a close second, if I had to assume, at least in the top three to five. Psalm 139. Many of you are familiar with this one, and it's fantastic, but I want to dive kind of deeper into it today. And this title, Fully Known and Truly Loved, is kind of a throwback to a quote I used from a guy named Tim Keller, who just recently in the last, uh, well, about a month ago or so, passed away after a long battle with pancreatic cancer. Tim Keller uh, was a decades-long pastor at a church in Manhattan. I mean, talk about a mission field. Did amazing work up there, was a fantastic author and, and so influential in uh, American Christianity. But he had this quote that I referenced in our relationships course. Um, he says this, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. To be fully known and truly loved, despite our faults, despite our flaws, despite our failures and imperfections, to be loved anyway is like being loved by God. And that's what we hope that our marriages can and should be like. And our family units can and should be like. But ultimately, that is how our relationship with God is supposed to be. Next slide, Jeff. Psalm 139 is amazing. And it reminds us of, of some stuff. Next slide. The, in working with teenagers a lot, in working with middle schoolers, high schoolers, I try to drive home this point. That there are three most important beliefs in your life. And every single one of us has an answer to this somehow that we've developed over the years. Number one is what I believe about God. What I think and believe about God. All right. Who is God? Is he creator? Does he even exist? Like, what's your answer? Who is God? Number two, what I believe about myself. And number three and I think probably most important from a day-to-day -day perspective, what I believe that God thinks about me, what I think God thinks about me. Is God some cosmic policeman just waiting for you to mess up so he can smite you? Is God some kind of Santa Claus up in the clouds waiting to pour out all the material blessings that you ask him for? Is he some kind of grandpa figure? Is he some kind of overbearing, authoritarian, abusive father that you might have grown up with? Like, who is God to you? And what do you think God thinks about you? Are you a worm? Are you nothing? Are you a sinner? Are you no good, dirty, filthy? Or are you his precious child? I think that's critically important. Next slide. I want you to think back to your baptism, those of you who have been baptized into Christ. Think back to that moment of salvation going under the water. What was that like? Do you remember? Do you remember having your sins washed away? Do you remember the renewal that goes with that? Do you remember the promise of the Holy Spirit and the inclusion into 
the body of Christ. What was that like for you? I think so many of us, maybe we make the decision for baptism as kind of a a get out of hell free card, right? We are so terrified of what could happen if we aren't baptized, if we don't get saved, that we have to, but it's out of fear, not out of love. But I want to think back to Jesus's baptism, Jesus' baptism is recorded in all four Gospels, kind of indirectly in the Gospel of John. But regardless, Jesus goes to his relative John the Baptist, who is baptizing people in the Jordan River, have this conversation, no, I need to be baptized by you, Jesus. And Jesus is like, no, John, let's do this to fulfill all righteousness. It's the right thing to do. It's what God wants me to do. Let's do this thing. And so Jesus is baptized by John in the river. And when he comes back up out of the water, Uh, We're told that the heavens part, the the spirit of God descends on him like a dove and a voice from heaven calls out and says this, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Think about that for just a second. This was true before Jesus did any teaching, before he did any miracles, before he healed anybody, before he had any kind of a following, before he began to fulfill his mission here on earth, before any of that, before he did anything, the reality was, you are my beloved son, and I'm pleased with you. And I think God wants to tell that to each one of us today. We don't have to do anything to become his beloved. We don't have to say all the right things and do all the right things. We don't have to live a perfect and holy life all the time to be his beloved. Now, that stuff does follow with that, but this is the truest reality from which everything else flows. I have a quote from Henry Nouwen. Maybe you're familiar with him. Henry Nouwen uh, was a Catholic priest turned uh, scholar and professor who left it all behind to finish out the last decades of his life serving those with mental and physical disabilities. Like, he knows what's up. (laughs) And if you've ever read his books, you know how impactful they can be. So there's a short little book called Life of the Beloved that is probably one of the most impactful books I've ever read. And he says this, he's kind of writing to a friend, so it's kind of in a letter format. So writing to a friend, he says this, he says, yes, there is that voice, the voice that speaks from above and from within that whispers softly or declares loudly, you are my beloved, on you my favor rests. It certainly is not easy to hear that voice in a world filled with voices that shout, you are no good, you are ugly, you are worthless, you are despicable, you are nobody, unless you can demonstrate the opposite. These negative voices are so loud and so persistent that it's easy to believe them. And that's the trap. It's the trap of self-rejection. That's a typo there, sorry. Over the years, I have come to realize that the greatest trap in life is not success, popularity, or power, but self-rejection. Self-rejection is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life because it contradicts the sacred voice that calls us the beloved. Being the beloved expresses the core truth 
of our existence. You are beyond anything else. Before you are a husband or a father, a wife or a mother, a daughter, a a teacher, a worker of any kind, before you are anything else, you are God's beloved. His beloved son, his beloved daughter, his beloved child. That is the core of our existence. That is what God thinks of you. And Psalm 139 calls us to reflect on these things. Next slide. So again, three most important beliefs. What I think about God, what I think about myself, and what I think God thinks about me. If you're able and willing, let's stand as we read through Psalm 139. And as we've done, uh, I think last week, I will read the words in white, and I want us all together to read the words in yellow. So the words in yellow, let's all read along with me out loud. I'll read the words in white. This is from the New Living Translation. David writes, O Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I'm going to say even before I say it, Lord. You go before me and follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I go down to the grave, you are there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the farthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night. But even in darkness, I cannot hide from you. To you, the night shines as bright as day. Darkness and light are the same to you. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up, you are still with me. Oh God, if only you would destroy the wicked. Get out of my life, you murderers. They blaspheme you. They, the, uh, your enemies misuse your name. Oh Lord, shouldn't I hate those who hate you? Shouldn't I despise those who oppose you? Yes, I hate them with a the total hatred. For your enemies are my enemies. Search me, oh God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Like I said, I think of these three beliefs, the one that affects us most on a day-to-day basis might be number three, what I think God thinks 
about me. And Psalm 139 invites us to reflect on that belief for a while. And as we dive into Psalm 139, I believe we are revealed four core truths of who we are. Next slide there, Jeff. Four core truths about me, about you, about everyone we come in contact with from Psalm 139. First is that God knows me. Second is that God is with me. Third is that God created me for a purpose. And fourth, my allegiance is to God alone. Let's look at how these play out in Psalm 139. God knows me. God knows me. Uh, The Psalm uh, can be broken down into kind of four main sections of six verses a piece. So the first six verses of Psalm 139 reflect on the fact that God knows me. He knows when I sit down. He knows when I stand up. He knows when I leave the house. He knows when I come back home and binge Netflix. He knows the thoughts I'm going to have and the words I'm going to say even before I say them. He knows everything about me. It's interesting to compare how David lays this out. It's interesting to compare that with Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. It's the great Shema. It's, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And these words I'm giving you today are to be on your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when? When you sit at home or when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them on your hand and let, let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your home. So God is instructing his people to talk about him and talk about his laws and his covenant and his love for each other and all these things. When you sit at home, when you go out, when you lie down, when you stand up, everything. So there's a correlation between knowing God and God knowing you. <laughs> it's kind of, it kind of goes hand in hand. But God already knows everything about us. He knows the words we're going to say before we say them. Yikes. That can be dangerous in that Highway 37 traffic sometimes, right? That can be dangerous when you're waiting in the checkout line at Walmart. That can be dangerous when you stub your toe. Like, who knows? God knows. So my question for each one of these truths is, is it comforting or is it unsettling? Is it comforting to know that God knows everything about you or is it a little unsettling? Yikes. Well, I think it kind of depends. It can be both, right? It can be both. That God knows all of your sins. God knows all of your failures. God knows everything you've ever done that has hurt somebody else or that has been against what he has called you to do in your life. He knows. He already knows. Is that comforting or is that a little unsettling? I think it can be both depending on your situation. We all know this, the children's song, Jesus Loves Me, This I Know. Well, one, one day I saw those reversed, that Jesus knows me, this I love. Think back to the interactions that Jesus had with people on a day-to-day basis. For instance, think back to our series, The Book of John. The, one of the guys, Nathaniel, is brought to him by his buddy. And he says, before you came to me, I saw you under the fig tree. 
And somehow that rattled his world and said, oh, wow, you are it. You are the Messiah. This is amazing. And he's like, yeah, you ain't seen nothing yet. So Jesus already knew something about him. We're, we're told in, I believe it's John chapter 2, that nobody had to tell Jesus about the character of these other people that he was interacting with, like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Nobody had to tell Jesus who, what these guys were like because he already knew what was in their hearts. Think to John chapter 4 when he has that interaction with the woman at the well in Samaria. Go call your husband. Yeah, I don't have a husband. You're right. You've had five husbands, and the guy you're with now isn't your husband. And she's blown away because he tells her about herself. He knows her more than she knows herself. If, if she had gotten into it more, he probably could have told her why this keeps happening or what the situation is and revealing stuff about her that she had never even realized. Jesus knows me. Do you love that? God knows everything about you. Is that comforting? Every time I look at the Psalms, I try to find Jesus in the Psalms as well. And each of these four sections, I think, ties pretty well with one of the I am statements. Again, going back to John. And so when David here is writing about how God knows when I go out and when I come home, God knows my thoughts, God knows my, my fears, God knows the words I'm going to say. God knows all of it. He searched me. He knows me. It reminds me of, uh, of a conversation Jesus had in John 14 with his disciples. Before he's going to leave them, he's trying to give them words of comfort. He's saying, I'm going to leave. I'm, I'm going. And you can't follow me now, but later you will. And you know the way to where I'm going. To which one of his apostles says, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? To which Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's wisdom talk. If we want to have the comfort in knowing that God knows everything about us, then the best thing we can do is know as much as we can about God and Christ and the Spirit and walk in the way God has laid out for us. And that way is Jesus. That Jesus guides our steps. Jesus guides us when we go out. Jesus guides us when we come home. Jesus guides our thoughts and our words and our actions because he is the way, the truth, and the life. And through him, we can all come to the Father in heaven. Next slide, Jeff. God is with me. Truth number two. God is with me. David then goes into this exploration of, is there anywhere I can go where God isn't? If I uh, go all the way to the farthest easternmost places of the world, you're there. If I go off to the westernmost horizon on the ocean, you're there. If I go up to heavens, obviously you're there, but even down to the grave, you're there. If I say, hey, darkness, let's turn off all the lights, go into the darkest cave where you can't even see your hand in front of your face, maybe there I can hide from you. But no, even darkness is light to you. There is nowhere I can go to escape from your presence. You are with me everywhere. Again, I ask, is that comforting or is that a little unsettling? It makes me think of the story of Jonah, one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. Jonah chapter one is full of the repeated phrase where Jonah was trying to 
quote, flee from the presence of the Lord. Jonah's trying to run away because God called Jonah to go to Nineveh. He didn't want to go to Nineveh. Nineveh was the enemy. And so he fled. He went down to Joppa, got on a boat, sailed, a, wanting to start sailing across the Mediterranean Sea to the probably western uh, coast of Spain to Tarshish. The complete opposite direction. And if you know the story, God sent a storm to stop the boat dead in its tracks. And the boat was threatening to break up. The sailors were panicking. Whose fault is this? Long story short, they find out it's Jonah who's running away from God because he's already told them, all right, cool, you're running away from your God. Board up, we don't care. Well, now they care. And so they want to find out more about him. And he says, I serve Yahweh, the God who created the land and the sea, to which they basically said, this is my paraphrase, you idiot, why are you running away from the God who created the sea on the sea? <laughs> and even on the sea in the middle of the storm, God was there. Even when they threw Jonah overboard, God was there at the bottom of the ocean when he was swallowed by that fish. God was there with him. And even when he had this kind of what I call a come to Jesus moment kind of in the belly of that fish and then the fish vomited him out on dry land and he eventually did make it all the way to Nineveh, God was already there too. We'll talk more about that story in just a minute because I think there's so many tie-ins. But there's nowhere Jonah could go to escape God's presence even if he wanted to. And there's nowhere you can go where God isn't there already. David says, even if I go into the darkest night or the deepest cave, you are there. The darkness is as light to you. And it reminds me of how Jesus reminds us he is the light of the world. When he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever walks with me will never walk in darkness. We will have the light of life wherever we go. In the darkest night, in the worst kind of situations, through the storms like we suffered this morning, or on our best days, on our worst days, God is there. Is that comforting or is that unsettling? I pray that it is a comfort to you and that you aren't trying to run away from anything. It also reminds me of this prayer of St. Patrick. Many of you are familiar with this. It's a longer prayer, but this section in particular, this prayer of St. Patrick uh, Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of every man who speaks of me, Christ in the eye that sees me, and Christ in the ear that hears me. May we be surrounded by the presence of Christ our Savior. May we be surrounded by the presence of the Holy Spirit. May we be surrounded by the presence of God the Father, creator of heavens and earth, wherever we go and whatever we do. He is with me. Truth number three, God created me for a purpose. Again, working with teenagers a lot, we get the question, well, I just want to know what is God's will for my life? What am I supposed to do? Where am I supposed to go to college? Who am I supposed to marry? All this stuff. Like, what is God's will for my life? Big things. I'm like, you're 14. Don't worry about it. Right? <laughs> Don't worry about that just yet. But God did create you for a purpose. He did. Uh, this is probably the most familiar part of the psalm for many of us. When it says, for, I, for 
it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. That's kind of a funny image of God with his knitting needles, just like, as many of you might, you know, knit or crochet or whatever. And I know there's a difference between knitting and crocheting. You don't have to call me out on that. I will praise you because I am remarkably or fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wondrous. I know that full well. My bones were not hidden from you when you made me in secret. He goes on, like, your eyes saw my formless body before any of my days even came to be. You had them all laid out for me. And yes, I truly believe that each and every one of us living, breathing human beings was created in the image of God for a purpose. Genesis 1, in the image of God, in, the, in our likeness, they create, God created them, male and female, and blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. In Genesis 2, he created man and put him in the garden to work it, to tend it, to look after it. The man and woman, the, the humans that God created were created for a purpose, to fulfill God's plan, to be his image bearers, to be his likeness to the world, so that when, when creation saw us, they would see a little bit, a little glimpse of the divine. And if that applies to me, and if that applies to you, guess what? That applies to every other single person you come in contact with. Now, God created me for a purpose. Again, is that comforting or is that unsettling? Because I know it can be a source of anxiety for some, for some people out there. Wondering, well, why did God create me? Or why did all these bad things happen if God had a purpose for me? Or why, what am I here for? What is, what is my ultimate goal in life? And that can be a source of anxiety and discomfort for some people. But let me tell you, when you do find out why God created you, everything can change. That doesn't mean it's always easy, <laughs> all right? Because we do have the example of guys like Jeremiah. If you're familiar with the prophet Jeremiah, things did not go well for him. He did not have an easy life. But God came to him in the opening chapter. It's recorded there in Jeremiah, 4, uh, Jeremiah 1, 4 through 8. God comes to him and says, basically, hey, Jeremiah, you're going to be my prophet to the people. And Jeremiah's like, uh, I'm like way too young for this. And God's like, don't say you're too young. No, this is why I created you. I created you specifically for this pur purpose. You're going to take my words to the people of Israel, to the leaders, to the rulers, to the powers and authorities. And yeah, they're not going to listen to you at all, but just stay faithful to me because that's why I made you. Even when you find out what your purpose is, that doesn't mean you're going to have an easy life with it. Do not hear me kind of preaching the prosperity mumbo jumbo, right? <laughs> that is not a guarantee. That's not a promise. But if we stay faithful to God and his guidance and his leadership, then we will know our purpose in life. If nothing else, our purpose is to love God and love others. If, the, if you do nothing more than that, you have fulfilled your purpose. And that can take a lifetime to achieve. And it reminds me of when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. <laughs> I know their personalities. I know their names. I know their tendencies. I know them and I'm there to guide them. And they know my voice and they follow after me. And I've got sheep that aren't even in this sheep pen. I gotta bring them in too. 
A shepherd cares for his sheep and leads them in the way they need to go. He knows the purpose of the sheep. He knows the personalities of the sheep. He knows the names and the characteristics of the sheep. Jesus knows us, and God created us for a purpose. Ultimately, I believe that purpose is to bring glory and honor to God. And lastly, all right, this is probably the most challenging one, for me at least, as according to what David says. My allegiance is to God alone. This is where the song kind of takes a turn, all right? Let me refresh you. Uh, let's see. God, if only you would kill the wicked. The bloodthirsty men, stay away from me. Who invoke you deceitfully or blaspheme you. Your enemies swear by you falsely. Lord, don't I hate those who hate you? And detest those who rebel against you. I hate them with an extreme hatred. I consider them my enemies. Yikes. Okay, David, let's chill out a little bit, okay? This psalm has been so encouraging and uplifting, and then it's like, uh, kill everybody who does things wrong. Okay, here's what I want to say. Sometimes the psalms are not prescriptive. They're not telling you how you should feel. Sometimes the psalms are written just to capture human emotion. How many of us have ever had a thought like that? Boy, I wish I could just ram somebody off the road occasionally, right? You are just going two miles under the speed limit in the left lane, driver's license revoked straight to jail, right? I wish all the evildoers out there who don't know how traffic works would just be rammed off the road or something. I don't know. Like, you have these thoughts. Maybe I have a little bit of road rage that I need to work with. I don't know. Maybe that's just me. But we've all probably had that thought before, that somebody out there is deserving of death or punishment or injury or harm. Sometimes we think, yeah, life would be so much better if all the bad people would just go away. Well, guess what that might mean? <laughs> it might mean you too. Because if you're like me, I mean, I know I'm not perfect. I make mistakes too. I've done messed up on occasionally, right? So does that include me, the people that should be killed or sent away or put in prison? Like, does that include me? Because I know that at some point, I'm not sure when in David's life he might have written this, but if you know the story of David, he would have been included in that category of bloodthirsty and the murderers. We'll get to that next week, all right? It's coming. But even David wasn't perfect. David messed up big time. And so if he were included in this, then, I mean, it's a whole different story. Again, this reminds me of the story of Jonah. If you are familiar with that story, he goes all the way to Nineveh, preaches the worst sermon ever, and the entire city converts. The entire city repents. And he goes outside the city, and what is his reaction? How does he feel afterwards? How does he feel afterwards? He's angry. He's mad. He's angry that his sermon was so effective. Now, if I preached a sermon and the entire town of Mitchell converted, I don't know that I'd be angry about that. That'd be pretty cool. I'd love that. That's not going to happen. <laughs> Probably. 
But here's Jonah preaching a sermon. The entire city of Nineveh converts and repents, and he's angry. Why is he angry? Because he considers them his enemies. He considers them the worst of the worst. And honestly, if you look up the history of the Assyrian Empire, yeah, they were awful. (laughs) They were horrible people. Their their military strategies were, like, gut-wrenching. They, mm mm-mm, definitely not PG. But Jonah gets mad. But God ends the whole book of Jonah with a question, basically, shouldn't I care about these people too? Jonah, you cared about a plant more than you cared about these people. Shouldn't I care about these 120,000 people in Nineveh and also their animals? Question mark. The end? Yes. The answer is yes. God does care about them. God should care about them. And so should you, Jonah. And so should you and me. Jesus would say, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I tell you to love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. It was Jesus who on the cross, as he's being nailed in place, cries out, Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. It was Jesus who said, Peter, put away your sword. Whoever lives by the sword will die by the sword. It was Jesus who calls us to live a life of love, not just for our neighbors, not just for those who are like us, but for those who we would consider our enemies. So when David follows this up with, search me, O God, and know my heart, See if there's any way in me that offends you and lead me in the right path. I think this is a section we seriously need to consider. Like, yeah, David had those feelings, but in reality, God calls us to a a different type of life. Do not take that as prescriptive of how we should feel, but it is how we do feel sometimes, and we need God to point that out to us. I hope that makes sense. When David ends this psalm with search me, O God, and know my heart, test me and know my concerns, see if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the everlasting way or lead me in the way of eternal life, however you want to translate that. It does remind me of where Jesus says to his friend Martha after Lazarus had died, he says, I am the resurrection and life. You want to follow in the way of everlasting life, a life that will outlive you? Here on earth, follow Jesus. Follow me, and I will show you the better way. I will search you, I will know you, and I will lead you in the way you are supposed to go. Jesus is inviting us into that today. Next slide, Jeff. When you look in the mirror, what do you see? Many of you looked in the mirror this morning getting ready to come to church, right? putting your makeup on, doing your hair just right. Some of you uh, probably didn't, and it shows. It's fine. We love you anyway. Um, When you look in the mirror, what do you see? What do you see? Do you see the wrinkles and the gray hairs? Do you see the extra pounds that you've put on and just need to get back on that diet? Do you see the insecurities and the flaws? Do you see that scared little kid you used to be that's still hanging out inside you somewhere? Do you see that person that messed up so much that they don't even think there's any forgiveness or grace left for them? What do you see when you look in the mirror? What do you think about yourself? And ultimately, what do you think God thinks about you? 
When we, like David, say, search me, O God, and know my heart, when we open ourselves up like that to be truthful and honest, that's called vulnerability. Because sometimes we might not like what we find when we ask God to search us. But I think it's critical. I came across this article that was really well written, and I found this uh, section that I wanted to highlight today. Um, Renee Duggan said in her article, Fearless Vulnerability in Worship, the example of King David. The author says this, Vulnerability allows us to stand in the presence of God, fully honest about our flaws, and accepting the blood of Jesus that covers them. Then we can experience the depths of a relationship and a way of living worship our Heavenly Father desires for us and from us? Are we being vulnerable in our worship? In our quiet time with God, are we being open and honest and real? In our worship here gathered on a Sunday morning, when we sing these songs, when we pray these prayers, are we really truly opening ourselves up to being searched by God, to having those dark places revealed and lit up within us. Because as we see, God knows it already. There's nowhere we can hide from God and there's nothing we, nothing we can hide from God. Are we being open? Are we being vulnerable? Are we, like David, allowing ourselves to say, search me, O oh God. You know everything about me. You know all my thoughts. And if there's anything I don't know about myself, God, will you reveal it to me so that I can better serve you, so that I can better love others, so that I can be the person you created me to be? I wanna close with this and I wanna invite the worship team back up. A little remix for you of Psalm 139. Asking the question, well, what if Psalm 139 Instead of being written from David to God or spoken from us to God, what if it was written from God to us, from God's perspective? So let's think about this as we wrap up today. This is God writing to us. He might say something like this. My child... I have examined your heart, and I know everything about you. I know when you sit down or when you stand up. I know your thoughts, even when you're far away. I see when you travel and when you rest at home. I know everything you do. I know what you're going to say, even before you say it, my child. I go before you, and I follow you, and I place my hand of blessing on your head. You can never escape from my spirit. You can never get away from my presence. If you go up to heaven, I am there. If you go down to the grave, I am there. If you ride on the wings of the morning or if you dwell by the farthest oceans, even there my hand will guide you and my strength will support you. You could ask the darkness to hide you and the light around you to become night. But even in darkness, you cannot hide from me. To me, the night shines as bright as day. Darkness and light are the same to me. I made all the delicate inner parts of your body, 
and knit you together in your mother's womb. I watched you as you were being formed in utter seclusion, as you were woven together in the darkness of the womb. I saw you before you were born. Every day of your life was recorded in my book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. How precious are my thoughts about you, O child. They cannot be numbered. When you wake up, I'm still with you. O child, I know you wish I would destroy the wicked. They blaspheme me. My enemies misuse my name. O child, you shouldn't hate those who hate me. You shouldn't despise those who oppose me. Yes, you should love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you because of me. I will search you, O child, and know your heart. I will test you and know your anxious thoughts. I will point out in you anything that offends me, and I will lead you along the path of everlasting life. Let's stand together.